my wife Kate and I have the, have the honor of, of co, co-leading this church together. And so we're, we're just glad to be here and to be with you. And you guys are fine. Just clearing the stage. No big deal. <laughs> if it's not you, it's going to be me. So somebody's dropping something. So we finished up the series on Joseph and his life, and um, if you guys have been a part of that journey with us, you know how amazing that that teaching series was. And if you if you haven't had a chance, you can go on to lwrv.org and you can get all of those teachings. And so, the segue of just this powerful reality of Joseph's life is that at the end of it, as Kim did such a great job teaching it, at the end of Joseph's journey. He stood before his brothers who had betrayed him and, and, and sold him into slavery and it ruined his life. And he stood before them and he forgave them. And this is that powerful moment of, of what it looks like to steward your heart well through difficult seasons. Means that at the end of them or throughout them, you'll be able to stand in places where the expectation is that you would lash out or you would attack. But instead, because you've stewarded your heart with Jesus because you've allowed his spirit to keep you soft to him. Instead of repaying people who have wronged you, you release forgiveness to them. And you release this this reality of heaven into their life and into what is going on. And so what we have is the segue into this morning of this is this is typically called Palm Sunday or it's the beginning of Passion Week. It's the it's the beginning of Jesus's journey through Jerusalem to the cross. But at the cross, you have this this other moment that we see in the story of Joseph. When we see Joseph standing before his brothers and forgiving, we see Jesus doing the same thing. Is that when he was raised up on the cross, his response was this prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't understand what they're doing. And that was the Genesis 50, 20 moment that we see in Jesus' life. And in Joseph and Jesus, there's obviously parallels. And as you studied it, you probably saw so many parallels between Joseph and between Jesus. And so it's an easy step for us to go, how was Jesus able to, be, to forgive in the face of those who were murdering him? What was it that Jesus carried that he was able to release? And we know fully God and fully man. But there was something that he was able to tap into, and that was the heart of the Father. And what was taking place throughout this week that we're celebrating as we head into Easter, I don't want us to miss that. And so today's message is going to be a 30,000-foot view of the week of Jesus leading up to the cross, because I don't want us to miss some of the things. I don't want this week to just blur past us. I want you to stop on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday, and on Sunday, and truly encounter the journey that Jesus walked for you and for us. And so, if you wouldn't mind buckling up, um, we have a quick and hopefully eye-opening journey that we're going to take this morning. And so, what I want us to do is begin today by simply restating what it is that living waters, that us as a house and as a community, what we, what we build on. And hey, it's Skip. Skip is back from Jamaica, from the mission field. Hi, Skip. Give him a hand, you guys. Good to see you. 
Glad you're home. Um, if you want to hear about Jamaica and all the cool things that God's doing through them and down there, through Skip down there, feel free to grab them and talk to them. We'll be telling their story more in the weeks ahead as well, but we're glad you're home and safe. Um, so here at Living Waters, the simplicity of it is this, is that our faith and our journey has always been, been about the centrality of Jesus Christ. And that's where we want to begin as we lay the ground week for this coming, or the groundwork for this coming week is just remembering him, that he is God with us, that he was God in the flesh, and through his death and his resurrection, he offers us the way of eternal life, the only way to eternal life. And, and so in saying that, we understand that Jesus is everything. We cannot, we can't follow him too passionately. We can't worship him in excess. We can't, we can't pursue his word too in depth. It's impossible to do it with, with, with too much passion, too much energy. You can't do it. Everything we are is about Jesus, and we believe that. And, and, and that the erosion of our faith takes place when we take our eyes off of Jesus. And so we can't be too passionate about keeping our eyes on Christ, the center of our faith. And so the reason that we begin our, our, so many of our gatherings with the declaration, we say this, everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we experience, everything that happens in your spirit, any healing that takes place, any restoration that takes place, any redemption that takes place, we begin by saying and declaring, it's all because of Jesus. That's it. And that's the beginning and that's the end. Everything that we experience together as a community of life and love and, and joy and, and, and that, that famous Christian word we love to banter about of breakthrough. It's all because of Jesus. And so we maintain him at the centrality of everything that we do and believing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. So when we make much of Jesus, here's what we believe, that we raise him to the centrality of our lives and that our community and our gatherings is that we expect people to be drawn into relationship with Jesus, life-changing relationship with Jesus where our old lives are gone and our, and, and our new life in Christ remains and that we would be filled with his spirit and we would experience his presence and we would learn to hear his voice and we would, we would see miracles in and around and through our life because Jesus is fully alive. And he is as present today here as he was when he walked the earth with his disciples. And so our expectation is that our relationship with him would reflect that nearness. And we believe that being with Jesus, it's impossible for us to walk with Jesus and to remain unchanged by him. It's impossible. If we follow Jesus with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, we will become like him. We cannot continually and willfully desire things that are contrary to his spirit and his word. We will be conformed into his image, transformed by his truth and by his presence and by his word. 1 John 1, 6 says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And you may be reading this and saying, oh no, that sounds like performance. Trust me, this is not performance. This is presence. A presence-driven life that we get to lead. Ephesians 1.7 says that God gives us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Jesus better. That's presence that we're talking about. We're not performing to earn encounter. We live in presence in order to walk out his likeness. 
And so I don't want us to ever come to this church and be, have a heavy burden laid on us of actions and behaviors. I want us to have a, a burden that is a yearning, a desire to know him deeply, to shed off old ways and old habits, to have our minds transformed, to step out of behaviors that are hurting us and hindering us because of who he is. And that is his life and reality is melded with us. And we are one in Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenlies and his presence and his spirit are in us. That the overflow of that relationship would be that Christ likeness. We'd be regenerated and that life would flow out of us. And so let's pray as we begin this week. That's the beginning point, I believe. The centrality of Christ for this week, for us to approach what is ahead in these days that are ahead, that they wouldn't simply fall as a calendar and a, and, a, and a holiday, but that we would, we would approach this week, 2021, as, as something different, maybe than we've ever experienced before. So Jesus, we center our lives on you. And we thank you that while you changed us once, that is theologically and doctrinally true, the working out of that change in our daily life is about our love, our affection, and our adherence to you. And so we say again, yes to your will and to your ways. We say, open up our lives, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our homes, our families, our places of business, the places we find ourselves. We open up to your presence. Knowing, God, that you are everywhere, yet a God of permission who knocks. And we choose as a people to be those who open our lives to you, that we would dive deep into your word, that we would look at these scriptures today and that new understanding would be able, would begin to just be birthed in us, new revelation. Make your word come alive to us. Let your, let your spirit fill every person within the sound of my voice in a new and a fresh way, as Ephesians tells us, that we would be people who are being filled with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is the beginning of our celebration of Easter. Um, often you've heard this called Palm Sunday. Woo! So it, um, first, right out of the gate, I'm going to disappoint you. It wasn't Sunday. It was Monday. So I'm not sure what Palm Sunday is, but I know what Palm Monday is. Um, but this is what they call the way of sorrows. And, and if you... Uh, some of you have probably visited Israel and visited Jerusalem, and you've walked uh, the the Way of Sorrows. It's all it's the points throughout Jerusalem where Jesus was was when Jesus was taken and then brought to the cross and crucified and buried. And you've, you maybe some of you have walked that path or you've heard that heard of that. And 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 so what we want to do is we want to back it up to the week and understanding that this Way of Sorrows actually started way much earlier in Jesus's journey and his with his disciples. It actually goes all the way back to a point where he withdraws into, uh, out of the, the limelight, if you will. And he says to his disciples this, this conversation with them, and we've talked about this before, and he says to them, who do, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, some say that you're this prophet, and some say you're this prophet. And he says, well, who do you say I am? You're Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And, and he speaks to them and says, that revelation right there, that's the revelation that my church will be built upon. And that place of revelation, they understood in that moment by God's Spirit. It's revealed to you from heaven. This isn't something that you figured out yourself. But in that revelation, I'm going to build my church on that reality of who Jesus is. And then he went on to tell them, he said in that conversation, he said, but here's the thing, 
I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to go on trial. I'm going to be put to death, and I'm going to be resurrected. And, and Peter says, his, one of his main disciples goes, oh, Jesus, not cursing, but like, not how you say it, but how Peter says it. And um, just kidding. Uh, but he goes, Jesus, this, this isn't going to happen. What are you talking about? And you guys remember this part of the story probably where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? You guys nod if you remember this part of the story. Okay, get behind me, Satan. Because, and, and really what's happening is that Jesus isn't calling Peter Satan. He's using a word, and the word is simply this, adversary. So that, that what you're speaking is adversarial to the pur purpose and plans that God has laid out for me. The sovereignty of God, the Father who has said, this is how this must take place. So the, the, what Peter was saying wasn't that he had like suddenly possessed and like, you will not go to the cross. Uh, get behind me, Satan. It was actually him just saying, get behind me, adversary. This is adversarial to the truth of who I am and what I'm, gonna, what I'm about to walk out. So he began telling his disciples that I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be persecuted. I'm gonna be put on trial. I'm gonna be killed. And they're going, no, this can't be. And so that's the beginning point of this journey. And then a little bit later on, Jesus goes on, on Saturday, he goes back to visit Lazarus. And, and if, you, if you recall uh, scripture, Lazarus was dead and, and Jesus called him out of his grave and he, and he came back to life and Jesus loved him. And so they, 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 he went and he visited him and he spent some time there. And of course, this was fairly recent, this miracle of resurrection. It was one of the, the messianic miracles we've talked about before as well that was where the Pharisees were, anytime someone claimed to be a Messiah, the Pharisees would come out and they would do these tests and they would say, did he do this? Did he do this? Did he do this? Did he do this? And, and one of those was that you would raise someone from the dead on the fourth day because they believed after three days that their spirit went away to the afterlife and you couldn't resurrect them anymore. And so, you, sorry, you guys are like cross-eyed now. Uh, skip that part. So anyway, one of these miracles was resurrection from the dead. And so, so there was this crowd of people who were beginning to see that this man was fulfilling the messianic miracles he was the Messiah, and a crowd was following him. And so Jesus went to Lazarus' house. There's a crowd of people there. He hangs out. He gets, he gets anointed. And, and then he begins to make his way to Jerusalem the next day, which would have been Sunday. So he has, he has he's, or sorry, he's hanging out on Sunday. And then on Monday, he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. And so as he's making his way to Jerusalem, he has this crowd of people with him. And then a crowd of people in Jerusalem who are greeting him. And this becomes that beautiful moment, that Palm Sunday moment where people greet Jesus coming on a donkey, which fulfills uh, Ezekiel 9. Is it Ezekiel? Sorry, don't quote me on that. It fulfills this, this prophecy of a king, a conquering king of Jerusalem coming in on a donkey. And so, it, because you're not coming for war, you're coming in, in, in that place of surrender. And so Jesus rides in on this donkey. People are laying down these, these uh, palm frongs palm branches and, and they represent victory and they represent peace and they're laying these down and they're, and they're saying they're, they're saying blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord what is that what scripture is that I want you to mark this Psalm 118 so Jesus references Psalm 118 three different times or Psalm 118 is referenced in the gospels three different times and then it's implied a fourth time because it's actually the song that is sung the psalm that is sung at the end of, uh, of the Passover meal as they go out to Gethsemane. And so you have this moment where 
where he visits Lazarus. He's, a, he's anointed, the crowd forms, and he walks into Jerusalem. I want you to also see this moment, and I'm trying to, to hustle through these things. So if you guys want um, scripture references and all these things, I hope that throughout the week this week on, on each of these days, I'll, I'll be able to write something that, that expounds a little bit on these as I'm kind of ripping through them today. But I want you to see this moment as well, is that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and as he's standing over Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem, and he said, if only you would have recognized what would bring you peace. But you didn't recognize it. And he weeps over, over Jerusalem because he understands what's taking place, is that while there were crowds who were chanting Jesus' name, for the Messiah to be received, it had to be the Jewish leaders who would receive him. And the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, they'd already decided earlier that they, didn't, they weren't going to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And so while there were crowds, there was a lot of people as well who were looking and plotting for ways to arrest Jesus and to kill Jesus. And so Jesus knew that he was going to be rejected not necessarily by this crowd of people, but that he was going to be rejected ultimately. And so he wept over Jerusalem. And I want us to see this picture of a savior who rides as a conquering king. Not because he has a throne on earth, but because he has a throne in heaven. And yet he still weeps over those who are lost and are those who are hurting. And so you have this picture of Jesus. And he's, and he's coming in on that, on that donkey. And he's, he's got the palm branches and the people shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and um, and so you have that, you have that beautiful picture. Um, let me make sure before I move on that I don't miss anything pertinent. Um, uh, it's always good when I pull out a giant packet of notes, right? <laughs> so the, the weeping, this moment of them weeping, I want us to see this, is that this is what happens when, we, when they missed who Jesus was or they missed what Jesus was doing. It put them in a place where he wept over them. And I want us to take that as kind of to heart for this week. So as we walk into Easter, that we would use this week to invite Holy Spirit to be able to reveal to us who Jesus is in deeper ways and what he's doing in this time, in this place, in your life and around your life, that you wouldn't miss him and you wouldn't miss this. And so then we go on to Tuesday. And Tuesday is this, this cleansing of the temple. And you remember this and... People often use this passage out of context to justify their anger at the culture around them. But I need us to understand contextually that what Jesus was in judgment of was the religious elite. And, and in the religious elite were doing something. When Jesus rebuked them, he, so, so he goes into the temple, right? He comes, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting. Everyone has torn down all the palm trees in the area. And he comes in and he, and he, looks, he looks around the temple and he checks it out. And the temple was supposed to be the center of worship of the one true God. And, and, and it had the holy of holies. It had that, that inner place, but it also had the outer courts the, the, where the women could come in. And then it had the courts where the, where the Gentiles or where the non-Jewish people could, could come in. And, and, and so he looks around and recognizing that there is so much corruption in this religious elite, this priesthood, this supposed priesthood was no longer attached back to Aaron anymore. Herod, the Romans had come in, they'd, they'd established a puppet king. The puppet king had established a completely different set of priests that were no longer connected with Moses or with Aaron. And so they were, and, and in that place, they were, in their corruption, they were selling 
All, and when people came, they had to buy, uh, they had to bring sacrifices. I, I've got my, my lamb, I've got my dove, I've got my grain offering. And they had to purchase those. And they would travel from all these different regions and countries, and they would travel to the temple to give their offering and to, to interact with the one true God. So what should have been the highlight of their spiritual lives, they were coming, and then they were being told, oh, you have to purchase you can only bring in sacrifices that we provide for you. Oh, okay, cool. Um, how do I get them? Well, you have to buy them. Oh, how, how much? It's $1,000. Oh, that's a lot more than the lamb was that I would have bought and brought myself. But okay, it must be a very special lamb. And so they'd say, but here's the other thing. You can't use your money to buy it. You have to use special temple money or, or from this region, finances from this region. You have to use it. So we'll exchange my, your money for our money at a high rate, and then you will buy from us at overpriced your sacrifices. And so there was this gouging that was happening. And what really was at the, at the base of it, it wasn't about greed only. It was actually about restricting access to God's people. And so what they were using was systems and structures to hold certain people out of the temple. And they had built this, and Jesus looked at this, and he said to them, when he came back to clear the temple, and he began clearing the temple, he said, God ordained that this temple would be a place for all nations. And yet when all nations come to you, you have built systems and religious structures that are actually keeping them out from encountering God. And Jesus, in that moment, said something to us that we should understand now, 2,000 plus years later, is that he saw that system, and he destroyed it, and he cast it out of the temple. And so he ran that out, he ran that whole system out, and he, how in the world, you may be asking, how did Jesus do this? This isn't like one or two money changers, right? This is the entire structure that the, that the false priesthood was using to keep themselves in power and in money. How, how did he run them out? I'll tell you how. Because scripture mentions over and over and over in the gospels that he was surrounded by a crowd of common people who were listening to the things that he was saying. Jesus still had this crowd around him. The people that came with him from Lazarus's house, the people who welcomed him in to the, into Jerusalem, they were now a moving group of people. And Jesus had the protection that he needed. There was, there's mention a few times in the gospels of them saying, we would love to arrest Jesus, but we can't. Why? We can't arrest him because he's surrounded by people, because the people will rise up, because the people are hanging on every word he says. And so what they're beginning to do is waiting for a moment when Jesus is all alone. But it wasn't this moment. He has a giant crowd of people. We're clearing this temple, and they're like, yeah, let's do this. Which might, I mean, I'm not Jesus, but this might have been some of the confusion is because this is the very thing that they're waiting for. Oh, it starts with the temple, but let's head up to the palace next, huh? And Jesus wasn't concerned with making his way to a palace. He was concerned with the purity of the temple, of the worship. See, his throne wasn't in the palace, but people wanted to take him there. The moments where they said, let's, let, let us make you king. And he said no. And he, with his disciples, pushed his way through the crowd. Some people believe that, that the temple was cleared because Jesus had some sort of force emanating from him that protected him. It wasn't that. It was the people around him who were believing in him. And so you have this, this reality of the, of the cleansing of the temple and, and, and that it was for all nations. 
and it was to be a place of worship and honor, and they'd corrupted it, and they'd begin to steal, and they'd begin to hold people out. So then you have Wednesday, which typically when you do Palm Sunday on a Sunday, people will say, well, what happened on Wednesday? And they go, nothing. Oh, it was just a day of silence. Jesus took a day off right in the middle of the week. But when you understand and study it contextually, nothing I'm telling you is outside of the context, and nothing I'm telling you is going to affect your salvation either, so you're fine. Um, (laughs) And so the middle of the week is not his day off. It's actually Wednesday. And so on Wednesday... What he does, he cleanses the temple on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, he meets and he is questioned. And this is kind of a a powerful moment in Scripture, and and we can't go all the way through it, but we can go a little bit of ways into it, is that Jesus was questioned, and he was questioned by uh, three groups, the Herodians, which were in political power. He was questioned by the Sadducees, who were the religious elite, and he was questioned by the Pharisees, who were kind of the more of the commoners, not commoners, but more accepted by the people. Their teaching of the law, of, of, of uh, what they understood of Moses' writings and, and the law and the, and the oral traditions. And Jesus actually rebuked them often throughout Scripture in his interactions with them for elevating the traditions, these oral laws. And so there's the written law, the Old Testament, and, and much of the Old Testament, but then they had, they'd made up, not made up, but they had written in addition to these, this oral law, and they had hundreds and hundreds of commandments that they followed. And Jesus was often bugging them, like, hey, you got a whole bunch of rules, and you follow them when you're in the public eye, but I see your hearts are far from God. Why, why is that? And so he had these unique interactions with, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the Herodians, the political power. And, and so they asked, they each came. And their desire, the gospel writers tell us that their desire was to entangle Jesus and make him look foolish. So they were trying to undermine him in these interactions. And there is such a depth to these conversations, but let me see if I can do this quickly. So the Herodians wanted political power, and they wanted to be justified in their alignment with the Romans. And so they asked him, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? And they were trying to capture him because if he said, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, obviously that's treason. You'd be in trouble for that. If he said, yes, you should pay taxes, all of the people who, the, the Israelites who were waiting for uprising and wanted to overthrow Rome and didn't want anything to do with them would have been upset and he would have lost his following with the commoners. So they thought, oh, we've, we've surely trapped him. You guys may see this, you may see parallels of this conversation happening today in the 2020s, 2021, a lot. What's our, what's our political responsibility? What should we do? What should we do? Should we grasp for political power, political gains? Should we be only focused on the kingdom? What, what, what's our choice to be? Well, Jesus answered this question, and he answered it powerfully. He said, give me a coin. They gave him a coin. They said, whose picture's on here? And they said, that's Caesar. He said, then here's what you're going to do. If your stuff in your life that's, that is from Caesar, you render it to Caesar. But the things that are, that are mine, that belong to God, they give those to God. And what he was saying was very simple. Is that while we have rules and laws and things that are put on us, we follow those. But the real, real mark of our lives, the real part of who we are is that we are marked by the Father. So he's saying, yeah, give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but what is mine and what is his. All nations marked, let us create man, let us create woman in our image, marked by his image that he would say, that belongs to me. And they thought, I don't know how to answer that. So they wandered off. That's a good answer. I think we could, we should dive into Jesus's words and think about that a little bit these days. And then 
the Sadducees. Okay, so this gets a little bit, I don't know, Old Testament hermeneutic-y. Um, and so, so what do they say? So they believed in, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they come and they come to Jesus and they say, okay, there's a guy and a, a lady, she gets married and her husband dies. And the, and the, 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 the rules were at that time that if, if, you're, if, you, if your brother was married and you weren't married and then your brother died, you had to marry your brother's wife. It was your responsibility. And so they said, this happened seven times. What if this guy got married or this lady got married and for seven times her husband died? What, what should we do? And, and, he, and they were like, check on what she's doing. That's what I would say. But um, <laughs> that's not what Jesus said. So Jesus, they said, um, in, in heaven... In heaven, who's going to be married to this lady? Because they're like, uh, there's no such thing as resurrection. This is so dumb, blah, blah, blah. Who's, he, they thought they trapped him. And he basically said, you don't understand that we're not going to have the same kinds of relationships that we have on earth when we're in eternity. And you also don't understand that God had relationship with the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And he pointed out to them this place where he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if and as though they were still living. And they heard this as if they had heard it for the first time, never realizing that in Scripture, God actually interacted with the patriarchs who were still living to God. That was the proof of the resurrection. And they're like, oh my goodness, how did we never see this? Did you ever see this before? No, I didn't see this before. How come you never saw this before? You're an idiot. You made us look stupid. Let's go. So they all... They all left. So then the Pharisees come. And so the Pharisees are, they're loving this, um, they're loving this moment because they have seen their rivals for popularity. They have seen their rivals be, um, be dismissed before Jesus. And so they are, but the thing about the Pharisees, they're always trying to say, what's the most important rule that we should follow? What's the most important rule we should follow? We're going to follow the rules. So they said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? So he references the Old Testament, which they, they would have been familiar with. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second one is, 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 is equal. It's is important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus did in that moment is that he didn't rank the commandments. He actually summarized all of the commandments. So he's like, you've got 686 rules for Tuesday. You've got 6,000 for Wednesday. You've got 500 for this day. The Bible's got this many in it. You've got all these rules. Let me just take those for you. And let me summarize it for you in this one single thing. The Shema. The thing that they hear. To hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then he goes and he says, but, or in addition, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in this. And they again go, Right. Cool, 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 cool. And so they all wander off. And so Jesus has this, this moment. Well, they actually wish they would have wandered off. They should have wandered off. Because Jesus has this moment now where this is Wednesday, right? And he's hanging out and he answers all their questions. And then he says, let me, let me just share a few things with you. And so Jesus' question is this. Oh, gosh. Jesus asked them a question, and it's powerful, and he basically makes them admit that the Messiah is going to be divine. Then he says to them, woe to the Pharisees. 
This is why they should have left. Because seven things he finds to rebuke them as he sits there with them on Wednesday, the middle of the week, and he says, you convert people to a dead religion. You make people follow all of these rules and yet you don't follow them yourself. You have all these different things that you do, yet your hearts are far from God. You are dead on the inside. You are no better than whitewashed tombs. And his disciples are like, holy cow. Is this happening? This is happening. And Jesus lays into this religiosity that separates people from God. And he says, woe to you. The punishment is coming, and I want you guys to catch this. He said, you treated the prophets that my father sent to you, and the teachers, you treated them with contempt, you persecuted them, and you killed them. And he says this, may all of their blood be upon your heads. So he saw in them a continuation of what had been the problem for all of humanity is that no matter how God tried to reveal himself to his people, they simply rejected him and did what was right in their own eyes. And so Jesus said, finally, finally, here we are. And the consequence for all of that is on you. Now later on, when they call for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus, do you remember what they said? They said, may his blood be on our heads. So what they did is they took responsibility for all that Jesus had pointed them out to be guilty for and for the murder of Jesus. And they said, may it be on us. And that's why Jesus finishes Wednesday as he's walking out and the disciples are like, Jesus, you kind of got angry back there. Do you need something to eat? Maybe we swing by Taco Bell on our way out of town. Grab you a Snickers bar. Like, are you serious about what you're saying? Because you just said, you just said that all of these woes are going to befall this religious system. And Jesus said, it's true. I, in fact, look at this temple that's before you. Not one stone is going to be left standing on this temple because of what I just shared with you. All of the responsibility for the years and years and years of not listening to God, not hearing God, persecuting and murdering his prophets is going to fall on this temple. And, that, and as you know, that prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. That temple was completely destroyed. And so Jesus on Wednesday night as he's leaving, or on Wednesday afternoon as he's leaving, he declares this prophetic word over the temple. Thursday. Brings us to Thursday. So Wednesday night, he probably would have stayed in Gethsemane. There's a, there's a, a, a wine press that's there that he would have stayed in. And so, so then it's, you wake up Thursday morning. We got to go get the Passover lamb. It's now Passover. It's time for our Passover meal. They got to procure the lamb. They got to go find a place for Jesus to eat the Passover dinner together. And so they do all of these things. And we end up with what is traditionally called the Last Supper. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Is this like, th th we're way up here. We're cruising. Okay. And so they have this final meal together. It's beautiful beautiful. And so there's this system of celebrating Passover. Passover was when, during the plagues, when Jesus, when God released the, the Israelites from, from Egypt, the, the firstborn of each home was, was marked to be killed. And so what Jesus said, what, or what God said, it was God. And, 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 and Jesus is God. And it's, and it's not the difference. And so forgive me for all of my pauses. I'm just saying that Jesus, God said, 
Mark your doorposts with the blood of the lamb and God's protection will hover, will pass over your house. It wasn't God who was killing. It was his protection that they were calling upon. And so they, that, they celebrate still that Passover. So this is the Passover meal. The other thing that I want you to, to, to see is that the interesting thing about the dates and the way that it lines up on Monday would have been the day that you got the lamb and on Friday would have been the day that you sacrificed the lamb for your Passover meal. And that's when Jesus came, into the, it came in on Monday and, and was sacrificed on, on Friday. And so they had this, this Passover meal. And, uh, and so they have the meal. There's all of these beautiful parallels that happen in it. They, you drink four cups of wine, two before dinner, two after dinner. The third cup of wine is called the wine of redemption. You have that right after the meal. That's the one where Jesus stood up and said, this is my blood that's poured out for you. Uh, a new covenant that I make with you. Uh, a kingdom I, pro- I give to you. This is that reality of he, he, he took that redemption cup. And he, and he gave an entirely new meaning to it. And then and he took the bread and the, the bread that would have been taken at the beginning of the meal, hidden, wrapped up, hidden, and put away. They find it later. You take it out. It was, is that symbolism of him being buried, coming to life. This is my body broken for you. This is the act that Jesus used to set us free, to start, to, to inaugurate a new covenant. And so this meal is symbolic of that so powerfully. And then they walk out, and, the, and it says that they sung a hymn together, and that is what I said earlier, Psalm 118. So you had hymns and psalms that you would have sung during this meal, and that's, that's Psalm 118. And the end of Psalm 118, I want to read it to you. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to read it to you. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This would have been the last thing that they sang together as they headed out to Gethsemane. And again, to, to burst your bubble, there was not a garden. Just Gethsemane. Um, and so they headed out to Gethsemane. Oh, man, you guys are it's an angry group. <laughs> uh, one scripture mentions that there's a garden nearby, but it's not the garden of Gethsemane. It's a wine press. They're staying in a cave. And they'd stayed there the night before. Lazarus would have known where they stayed, away from the crowds. They would have separated themselves for this meal, away from the crowds. And so everything that Jesus did from about midday on Wednesday on... Was, was separate from that crowd of people that had been following him. And that's how Lazarus then, as you guys remember during the meal, there was that one of you will betray me. Lazarus gets up and he leaves. And um, we're like, whoever wrote this story isn't very good at foreshadowing. It's pretty obvious who the, who the guy is. But he walks out. He busts out of the dinner. We know he's going to do this. And that night, as they're there, Jesus is praying. He experiences temptation that is greater than temptation in the wilderness. He passes another temptation. It is this, God, let this cup pass from me, this cup of, pers- this cup, uh, of going to the cross. And yet he chooses and says, not my will, but yours be done. And so he passes this temptation. And in that place, in that moment, Lazarus comes with the Sadducees and the, and the temple guard and they arrest him. Why? Because he's away from all of the people. It was that moment that he was waiting for. The reason that Lazarus did this wasn't because he was evil or terrible. He probably was those things, but it wasn't simply because of that. It's too simple. It wasn't because he was greedy. It was because he had a misunderstanding of who Jesus was. I think it was the same misunderstanding that all the disciples had. I think it was the same misunderstanding that every person had who waved Jesus. 
Jesus in on triumphal entry to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought they were receiving a Messiah who would set them free from the Romans, a political power on earth to be a king on earth in the line of David that he would take that throne. He misunderstood and he saw Jesus walking into Jerusalem with thousands and thousands and thousands of people at his back and thinking, this is the moment we've been waiting for. We can grab onto man-made power and we can change everything. And Jesus was not interested in man-made power because he had a throne and he would go to it and he would sit on it and he would inaugurate a, a new covenant and an entirely new kingdom. But Lazarus saw that Jesus wasn't grasping at this throne. And in his frustration, how many times have I said Lazarus? At least I know who loves me in this room. <laughs> it's all right. If you're going to preach long enough, it's going to happen. So, so Judas, babe, come on. So anyway, all of those things, just replace it. You know who I was talking about. It's fine. It doesn't change the story. Or now you're just super confused. How many of you are super confused? I apologize. It's Judas. He betrayed him. We got one minute. Let's land this bad boy. That was good preaching too. We can't use that anywhere. So Judas saw that Jesus wasn't interested in this power that was being made available to him and he realized that all the things that Jesus was saying about being arrested and persecuted and dying were gonna take from him this opportunity to be a leader on earth. And I believe that what he did is that he thought, I will force Jesus' hand. And when they come to arrest Jesus, there will be a physical uprising. I will push this moment. I will try to control God, and I will push this moment for it to become an uprising. In fact, Peter played right into his hands, right? Because what did Peter do when the temple guards came to arrest Jesus? He pulls out his sword. And, Jesus, and he cuts somebody's ear off. Jesus puts his ear. How cool would that be? Oh, my gosh. Jesus puts his ear back on and goes like, dude, this is the thing I've been telling you about from that conversation that we had. Back when I asked you, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You said that's who I am. You knew who I was. You know, and I've told you what I have to do. And you still missed it. And my fear for us they knew who Jesus was. My fear is that we would know who Jesus is and we would still miss what Jesus is doing and how Jesus is doing it because we expect it to be a certain way. And when we create expectations, we create opportunity for disappointment. But what I want us to do this week is I want us instead to live in expectancy of saying, Jesus, we know who you are, but we don't want to miss what you're doing how you're doing it. And we want to live in expectancy as we look to you. So this Easter week, this Passion Week, with all of these moments, Jesus being arrested, taking to trial, and being crucified, we'll talk about this week. And some of these things that I shared, I'll clean up the wrong names, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll share these with you. I did get Jesus' name right throughout. Is that? <laughs> Yeshua is what I meant. What I want us to do is I want us to set ourselves aside this week 
in a way that would allow us to see who Jesus is, what he's doing, and what he's accomplishing. And it could be for you, it could be very personal. What is he doing in you, in your heart, in your life? Maybe it's for you, for your family, for relationships. Where, Jesus, what are you doing? I have this expectation that you're going to do it this way. And I don't want to hold so firmly to my expectation that I miss the reality of what you're doing because Jesus was up to something so much greater than what they expected. And he changed everything because he was willing to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Let us have that kind of week where we have the revelation of Jesus, not simply knowing who he is, but actually setting ourselves aside to hear from him and watch and join him where he is. Let go of expectations. Pick up expectancy. Disconnect from whatever you need to disconnect from. Let this be a week of fasting for you. Fast the, the inputs. Fast the angry voices, fast the opinions, fast the news, fast the sports, fast the numbing, whatever the thing is that numbs you and distracts you and fills you and keeps you going in directions that are losing connection with what Jesus is doing this week. Fast those things. I'm calling a fast. Here and now, I'm calling living waters to a fast. Boom. I think I can do that. We'll check the bylaws. Not food. All in favor? Hey, all right, we did it. So maybe it's just one thing, but think about it. Is, that, is it that newsletter that comes into your email inbox every morning, the first thing you check, and you're just inundated with a worldly perspective of how we need to take over political power and how we need to do this and how turn that off? Maybe it's a, something that comes into you that says you need to be a victim and you need to be hurt. You need to be angry. You need to be this. Shut that down. It's all those opinions. Unplug that stuff this week. Fast it completely. I'm not saying for eight days, just do it till Easter. And then here's what I'll ask of you. If any of that stuff added value to your life, bring it back in. If it didn't, leave it out. Because you could be missing the very thing that Jesus is doing right under your nose because he's not meeting your expectations. And what we need to do is we need to live fasted lifestyles where we are open and we can see who Jesus is and what he is doing. So fast this week. Find those things. Set that time aside. Set your hearts on him. And walk out this week of those things that I talked to you about. Just pray through them. Open the word. Study the gospels. Look at Jesus' last days and allow Holy Spirit to teach you and lead you and fill you. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Love you guys. Thank you for letting me preach at you. Sorry about the names.